You are listening to NTC Messina's podcast, where our desire as a family of God is to simply know God, love one another, and make disciples. So I have a message this morning. Um, I've actually spoken this message a few times in other places, and for some reason it hasn't worked out for me to speak it here, just with our schedule and uh, just, you know, how we schedule out our speaking team and all that kind of stuff. But this is a message that I really felt like God gave me in late February, early March, and I spoke at first in Augensburg. It was just kind of a one-off week. I was there. I wasn't here. And uh, I would say this. This isn't just, for me, a message, a sermon. I really feel like this is a prophetic message. And when I say the word prophetic, I mean this. God is always speaking to us. Now, how he speaks happens in infinitely unique ways. I've never heard God speak in an audible voice. I've, I've met people who say they have. I have never heard that. I think that would be cool. It probably would freak me out, actually. But God speaks to me in many ways. Sometimes the scriptures literally say, if you just look out at the sky and the trees and nature, God would speak truth to you. So there's, there's ways that God speaks to us. Sometimes I, I know stories, people get in the car and there's something going on in their life and they turn the radio on and it's just the right song. And God speaks to your heart. Sometimes it's in the whisper of your own conscience. Sometimes it's from the obvious pages of the scripture. But God is always speaking to us. And so when God gives us a message, that's a prophetic message. It means that God is declaring something into our life. Now when we say something is prophetic, it means that we're taking what God says to us and we're now speaking it out for the world. And so sometimes we have... This prophetic sense, meaning that we think God wants to say something really specific to us in a specific time, in a specific context, in a specific period. And I would say I think this message is a prophetic message for the church. And I I mean that in the larger sense. And so today I'm really excited to speak this here. And the the title, and you've got your notes there, it's called The Next Generation. And I want to kind of get to a story that really... I don't know if I've ever heard anybody speak about, I think when I was in, you know, taking some Bible classes and stuff, I, I remember hearing about the, the guy we're going to talk about, King Hezekiah, but I haven't heard many messages about it. And I was reading this in late February, this story just in Second Kings, um, and this story stood out to me, and, and I'm excited to kind of bring some thoughts to it. So I, this is what I'd ask. We're going to read a lot of scriptures today. So if you have a Bible... It's really helpful for you to have it open. If you have it on your phone, you can do that too. Um, We always want to remind you there's carts in the back of the sanctuary. Feel free to take a Bible off that cart. It's yours to take home if you need one. Um, We'd love to give out Bibles here. But I want to start in a verse in Exodus just to kind of give a, a premise to this idea of God being a generational God. So Exodus 3, verses 14 and 15, it's in your notes and it says this. So this is God and Moses. They're having a conversation. It says, God replied to Moses. Because, oh, let me just give you the backdrop here. So the situation is this, that Moses is now being told by God, you need to go to Pharaoh, and you need to ask Pharaoh to let my people go. This is the whole situation where the Israelites are not even Israelites actually yet. They're just the Hebrew people, and they've been enslaved by Egypt for 400 to 430 years. And, and it says that God has heard their cries, and he's now going to send Moses to tell Pharaoh to let his people go. Many of us may know the inkling or idea of this story. And, and you've got this moment where Moses is saying to God, okay, but who do I tell Pharaoh is sending me? And this is God's response. God's like, okay, if you need to know who's sending you, this is what you say. So God replied to Moses, I am who I am. Say this to the people of Israel. There's a whole bunch in that statement, I am who I am. He says, I am has sent me to you. And kind of the idea there is just pretty much I am and the word behind that, it's wrapped up in this thought of everything and all things and everywhere. It's just kind of all-encompassing idea. And it says, God also said to Moses, say this to the people of Israel. Yahweh, the God of your ancestors, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my eternal name, my name to remember for all generations. So listen to this. When Moses asks God how to describe 
God to others, one of the ways he says to describe him is say this, tell people I'm the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. God literally decides to use three generations of people to tell others who he is. He actually uses us to describe who he is. And he takes this generational stance. He's not just the God of Abraham or just the God of Isaac. He's the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He's the God of generations. And it says to declare this, that this is my name for all generations. God looks at us and he sees generations of people. Not just, now I know he sees us as individuals, but he also sees us as generations, meaning that the choices we make in our lives that impact our children and our children's children, our children's children's children, super matter in the eyes of God. And we see it all throughout scriptures. We see that God is a generational God. So let's turn to 2 Kings chapter 18, and I want to pick up a story here, King Hezekiah in 2 Kings. So let me give you a little understanding of what's happening in the two books of First and Second Kings. Basically, what's happened by the time we get to Second Kings 18 is this. You've got Israel, which is 12 tribes, the 12 tribes, okay? Well, by this point, they've split. They're no longer all friendly with each other. And the way they've split is there's 10 tribes, and they're referred to as Israel. And then there's two other tribes, Judah and Benjamin, and they're referred to as Judah, okay? And so you've got Israel in Judah. Now they're all the Hebrew people, they're all God's chosen people, but by this point in their storyline, they have become enemies with each other and enemies with others, and they're kind of constantly fighting. And actually what's happened is the the kings of Israel, and when you get through the book of Kings, what you'll see is in each chapter it'll say, "And the king of Israel at this time was so and so," and it's usually followed up with a certain line, and this is the line. And he did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. So every king gets a description. It either says he did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, or the king gets a description where it says he did what was pleasing in the sight of the Lord. And what you'll see is that most of the kings of Israel, if you're reading through, reading through the whole books of First and Second Kings, is that almost all the kings of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. They quickly went away from God's ways and they started to live their own way. They started to have pagan temples and gods and all these things. And what we see in the land of Judah and Benjamin, Benjamin was small so they don't get mentioned a lot, <laughs> is that they generally did often what was pleasing in the sight of the Lord. At least the king did what was pleasing in the sight of the Lord. Now they have their ups and downs. There's moments where they get a king where he does what's evil in the sight of the Lord. And then there's moments where they have a king who's does what's pleasing in the sight of the Lord. So we're going to get to 2 Kings 18, and we're going to start to hear some of this description. And I want you to pay attention to it, all right? So here we go. Let's start to read. 2 Kings 18, verse 1. It says, Hezekiah, son of Ahaz, began to rule over Judah in the third year of King Hosea's reign in Israel. So they're comparing the two different kings, one in Israel, one in Judah. He was 25 years old when he became king. And he reigned in Jerusalem 29 years. His mother was Abijah, the daughter of Zechariah. He did what was pleasing in the Lord's sight. Okay, so that's good. So here we've got Hezekiah. He's the new king of Judah, and he does what's pleasing in the sight of the Lord. But there's kind of another tagline that's right in this sentence that it differentiates Hezekiah from all the other kings. And this is what it says. He did what was pleasing in the Lord's sight, just as his ancestor David had done. No other king in First and Second Kings gets this description. And this is why. Verse 4, it says this, Hezekiah, he removed the pagan shrines, he smashed the sacred pillars, and cut down the Asherah poles. He broke up the bronze serpent that Moses had made because the people of Israel had been offering sacrifices to it. The bronze serpent was called Nehushtan. Hezekiah trusted in the Lord, the God of Israel, and there was no one like him among all the kings of Judah, either before or after his time. He remained faithful to the Lord in everything, and he carefully obeyed all the commands the Lord had given Moses. Wow, this is quite a description. 
And it starts by saying he did what was pleasing in the sight of the Lord and that he lived kind of like King David. And the difference here in this situation is this. Hezekiah is different than other kings for one reason, because he didn't just do what was pleasing in the sight of the Lord for himself. He then began to require his kingdom to do what was pleasing in the sight of the Lord. And so he went around the kingdom and he began to cut down the Asherah poles and smash the pagan shrines. And it even says that the bronze serpent that Moses had used, if you don't know the story of the bronze serpent, there's a moment where Moses comes down from a mountain. He's been with God for a while. And uh, the people of Israel are doing some things that aren't so great. And then this disease breaks out and many of them are dying. And the way that they can be healed from this disease, and it's a really weird story, I know that, is that God says, hey, make this pull this bronze pole and put a bronze serpent on it. Anybody who just lays eyes on that will be healed. And it's funny, God uses this symbol for them to get this miraculous healing and later Hezekiah breaks it into pieces because they've turned it into God instead of worshiping God. And we can do the same thing, just so you know, in Christianity. We often try to take the things that God has done for us and we begin to worship those things rather than looking to God himself. And so Hezekiah even breaks this kind of past miracle symbolized thing apart. And he begins to require the land, the people, to actually do what's pleasing in the sight of the Lord, not just himself. And then he gets to this statement. It says this, there was no one like him among all the kings of Judah. Now, listen, if I was in the Bible... I would love this statement to be said about me. Wouldn't you? I wouldn't want the one that says, he did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. But it says that there was no one like him among all the kings of Judah. What an incredible statement. And then it says this, either before or after his time. I want to stop there because this is kind of the point of my message. And I read this. Now I've read this story many times in my life. Um, I've read through the Bible front to back a number of times. And I, 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 when you're doing that, sometimes you end up just glossing over things. And I, I know I've read this, but this statement hit me hard just a few months ago. And this is the reason it hit me hard. Because as I read it, my initial response is, what an incredibly great statement to be made about you. But then I realized this statement's actually an indictment. It's not really as great as it sounds. You want to know why? Because it says this. There was no one like him among all the kings of Judah, either before or after. And I realized, why was there no one as good as him after him? You see, I began to realize this is an indictment on Hezekiah, actually. Because the truth is, our life, and our call and our service to God should not end with just our personal choice. It shouldn't end with just me. I don't want it to be said, Greg was the greatest pastor NTC ever saw. I'd like them to say that Greg made a ceiling of his life where the floor for the next generation was. That the generations after him did ten times more and a better job than he did. Because he started to create an environment. But somehow Hezekiah gets before and after written about him. And so I began to read through Hezekiah's life to say, what, what happened? Why would it say no one was as good after Hezekiah? Because in my mind, that's a miss. There's an issue with that. Because you see, God's a generational God. He doesn't want to do works in one generation that don't pass on to the next. He doesn't want to raise up one generation but not care about the next one after and the next one after that and the next one after that. But something happens in Hezekiah's life, and we're going to get to that. But first I want to keep going just so that we see the storyline of Hezekiah. So it says, He remained faithful to the Lord in everything, and he carefully obeyed all the commands the Lord had given Moses. So the Lord was with him, and Hezekiah was successful in everything he did. He even revolted against the king of Assyria. And refused to pay him tribute. He also conquered the Philistines as far distant as Gaza and its territory. From their smallest outpost to their largest walled city. So here we've got him. He's, he's successful in everything God's given to him. And he begins to take land back for the, 
for the kingdom of God. And that's kind of the viewpoint we see. And it says that he stopped paying tribute to the king of Assyria. And this is something I want you to understand. So the king of Assyria and the Assyrians at this time were the most powerful nation in the entire world. And they were for quite a long time, actually. And so every country that even existed in the world at that time, within the reach of the Assyrians, only existed because they paid tribute to the Assyrians, meaning this, they bribed them to not come and fight with them in war. So in order to kind of have, in a sense, as much independence as possible, they had to pay them off. And Hezekiah, because God's with him, he kind of gets, you know, I'm not going to pay that anymore. Why am I, Why are we paying the Assyrians, these evil people? And they were not great people. And so he stops paying tribute. But let's get down to verse 13. It says this, In the 14th year of King Hezekiah's reign, King Sennacherib of Assyria came to attack the fortified towns of Judah and conquered them. So eventually, the king of Assyria is like, wait a second. That country Judah over there is not paying their tribute? That's not okay with us. And it says that they send their armies and they come to attack the fortified towns of Judah. And it says they conquered them. So they conquer all the towns of Judah. And King Hezekiah sends this message to the king of Assyria. He says, I have done wrong. I will pay whatever tribute money you demand if you will only withdraw. The king of Assyria then demanded a settlement of more than 11 tons of silver and one ton of gold. That's a lot of money. To gather this amount, King Hezekiah used all the silver stored in the temple of the Lord and in the palace treasury. Hezekiah even stripped the gold from the doors of the Lord's temple and from the doorpost he had overlaid with gold and gave it all to the Assyrian king. I like this part of the story just a little bit. I know it's not a good part of the story. But for me, it kind of tends to reflect us as humans, doesn't it? I think that we can look at King Hezekiah's life, even as individuals, and say we're kind of like him, that we come to God, right? We make a choice to follow Jesus. And, and honestly, in the midst of that choice, everything feels wonderful, right? It feels like that description, like, oh, everything I do, God's blessing me in. And, and we see this kind of great stuff over our life take place. We maybe see miracles take place. But then guess what happens? The enemy takes notice, And so the enemy can kind of come against our life, right? And then life isn't so easy. And so sometimes I think we end up acting just like King Hezekiah in this moment. We have this come to Jesus moment and we give our life to him. Then life gets hard again because the enemy doesn't want to make it easy for us. And our first thing is is to do this. Make concessions. Okay, wait a second. (laughs) Maybe we jumped into this Jesus thing a little too fast. I mean, that church is kind of weird, after all. Maybe we shouldn't actually put in everything. Maybe we shouldn't be on. Maybe we can just kind of come only in halfway. You know what? I'll make some concessions to the enemy. And so, literally, he even begins to take the gold off the doors of the temple, like the Lord's literal house, and give it to the king of Assyria, trying to make a concession to buy back their freedom. I'll tell you this. If you come to Jesus and find freedom, there's nothing you can pay to keep it from the enemy. It will never work. It's a lie that we tend to believe like, oh, God made us free, but now if I want to stay free, i got to do something to earn that. It won't work. It doesn't work here. Verse 17, nevertheless, the king of Assyria sent his commander-in-chief, his field commander, his chief of staff, the chief of staff, with a huge army to confront King Hezekiah in Jerusalem. So at this point, all the fortified towns of Judah have been taken over. The only place left is Jerusalem. So they send this huge army to Jerusalem, and the Assyrians took up a position beside the aqueduct that feeds water into the upper pool near the road leading to the field where the cloth is washed. They summoned King Hezekiah, but the king sent his officials to meet with them. Listen, I want to give you just a perspective of what's taking place here. So I've been to Jerusalem a couple times myself, and I've stood on the walls of the old city, and I, I read scriptures like this, and I think to myself, How in the world would any nation ever overtake this city? It seems completely impossible to me. I mean, these walls are 60, 70 feet high, and Israel's built on a hilltop, or Jerusalem's built on a hilltop, and it's literally like so steep down the hill, 
on the side of those walls that you could maybe climb it on your hands and knees. And I think, how could an army ever come and win a war against them? And this is exactly how. And the, and the king of Assyria is threatening how. It says, what do they do? They come and they camp next to the aqueduct. So the only way that we see in the scriptures in the Old Testament that Jerusalem was ever taken over was by siege. Which means that an army would come and encamp around it and they would cut off their water supply. They would cut off their food supply until they became so desperate that they would let them in. And doesn't the enemy do this to us? Comes and camps right next to our supply of life. I mean, water has always symbolized life, right? We see Jesus even call himself, you know, this spring of bubbling water and eternal life within us. That there's this place where the enemy wants to come and try to threaten the supply of life in our, in our lives. And so the enemy sets up camp here and they're threatening like, oh, you're going to tell us No. You're not going to let us in. We're going to set up camp right next to the source of water in your life. And they begin to threaten them, and we're going to jump down. Verse 19, and so you've got the, the chief of staff, and he begins to declare this message from the king of Assyria, and this is what it says. This is what the great king of Assyria says. What are you trusting in that makes you so confident? Do you think that mere words can substitute for military skill and strength? Who are you counting on that you have rebelled against me? On Egypt? If you lean on Egypt, it will be like a reed that splinters beneath your weight and pierces your hand. Pharaoh, the king of Egypt, is completely unreliable. So even Egypt was less powerful than the king of Assyria at this time. And they're saying, you're going to try to make a pact with them? It won't work out for you. But perhaps you will say to me, verse 22, we're trusting in the Lord our God. Now listen, think of this in the tone. They're ridiculing them. But isn't he the one who was insulted by Hezekiah? This is what we see. The enemy begins to twist the truth. Didn't Hezekiah tear down his shrines and altars and make everyone in Judah and Jerusalem worship only at the altar here in Jerusalem? I'll tell you what. Strike a bargain with my master, the king of Assyria. I will give you 2,000 horses if you can even find that many men to ride on them. Listen, this is called sarcasm. They're ridiculing them. They're saying, oh, you want to you try? We'll even give you 2,000 horses and chariots just to give it a shot for you if you even have that many men to ride on them. With your tiny army, verse 24, how can you think of challenging even the weakest contingent of my master's troops, even with the help of Egypt's chariots and charioteers? What's more? Do you think we have invaded your land without the Lord's direction? Here's the biggest lie. The Lord himself told us, attack this land and destroy it. So listen to the lies of the enemy, right? They come and they start to twist the truth and they start to try to cause doubt. Don't, doesn't this happen to us? The enemy tries to whisper this doubt and this deception into our life. And, and so what we see when this is happening is they're shouting this to the to the uh, people that King Hezekiah sent, you know, his administrator, and, and they're listening, and they begin to tell this chief of staff from the king of Assyria, hey, listen, we speak Assyrian, so just talk to us in Assyrian. The reason they're doing that is they don't want the people on the wall to hear the threats that are being said. And you'll see that it says, they, they try to get them to talk in Assyrian, and it says the chief of staff stood and shouted in Hebrew to the people on the wall, verse 28. We're going to jump down to verse 31. Then it says this, don't listen to Hezekiah. So now they're shouting to the people. These are the terms the king of Assyria is offering. Make peace with me. Open the gates and come out. Then each of you can continue eating from your own grapevine and fig tree and drinking from your own well. Isn't this what the enemy does to us? Tries to entice us to give up. Listen, you don't need God. You don't need his promised land. Just let us in. But then listen to this in verse 32. Then, this is the king of Assyria saying this, then I will arrange to take you to another land like this one. A land of grain and new wine, bread and vineyards, olive groves and honey. Choose life instead of death. Doesn't that sound familiar, that description? It sounds like the promise given to Abraham for the promised land, a land flowing with milk and honey. Let me tell you this, 
in your lives, in our lives, there is no land like the promised land. There are no likes to the things that God promises you. If God promises you something, the enemy will always try to come and substitute it in your life. He'll try to make it sound just like what God's promised you to get you to give in to him. But you have to understand, the promises of the enemy are always flat. Now, luckily, the people of Israel, the, peop the Hebrew people, the people of Judah, they know this about the Assyrians. They know it's all lies. I want to give you a little backdrop on the Assyrians. You see, the Assyrians were really quite evil people. Just 80 years prior to this, you might know another story called the story of Jonah. And Jonah was a prophet from God, and he was given a message from God. And God said, go to Nineveh, which is the capital city of the Assyrians, and tell them to repent and turn to God, or else I'm going to destroy them. And what has happened in the story of Jonah? If you don't know it, Jonah's like, no way. And let me tell you why Jonah says no way. You see, sometimes we read that story and I think we're all like, geez, Jonah. I mean, come on, God asked you to do something. Why didn't you say yes? I'll tell you why he didn't want to say yes. So this king, this king of Assyria was known, and the, and the city of Nineveh was known for its completely atrocious evil acts. For over one and a half miles to the entrance of the city of Nineveh, there were poles with people's bodies completely impaled on them. When you came to the city gates of Nineveh, the walls and the city gates were covered in the skins of humans. These people were atrocious. They did things I can't even say in church. These kings were known for mutilating people, for destroying whole people groups. They were evil people. This is the people group that God says, listen, go and tell them to repent and I'll have mercy on them. And this is why Jonah's like, are you kidding me? Like, I gotta walk by a mile and a half of impaled bodies, God. Are you confused about that? And then you want me to go and tell them to turn from their ways? I'm gonna be on another pole. But Jonah goes, right? And he tells the king, this is what the Lord God says. And what happens? If you know the story, they do. They repent. And the king actually acquires all of Nineveh to begin to worship God. This is just 80 years prior. Just one generation later, the king is back to the same old things. A different king. Actually worse than the king that was in the time of Jonah, King Sennacherib. This king, the worst known of all the Assyrian kings, what he would do to people. And so here you've got this king who's lying, and they know the history of the Assyrians. Just like Jonah wanted to say no to God, they're kind of like, we're not dumb enough to open the gates to you. And so they kind of reject it. But listen, this is in the midst of an entire army surrounding them. They are destitute. They are distraught. The king, of he king Hezekiah, he's distraught. It says that he goes and he tears his clothes. This is kind of a normal thing people do when they're upset. So if you tear your clothes, it's okay. They tear their clothes and he puts on sackcloth and he begins to mourn for the city. But then guess what happens? A prophet comes to see him. Now in this time period, the prophet of that day was Isaiah. If you don't know much about Isaiah, he's an incredible guy. Large book in the Bible, if you just open it up, you'll probably find Isaiah. So Isaiah comes now to King Hezekiah to give him a message. And honestly, the message is a good message. So Hezekiah is kind of mourning, he's distraught, what are we going to do? We're going to turn now to chapter 19, verse 32, and after a, a number of things where Hezekiah and Isaiah are talking, Isaiah begins to give this message from the Lord. So chapter 19, verse 32, it says this, and this is what the Lord says about the king of Assyria. So this is Isaiah's message from God. His armies will not enter Jerusalem. They will not even shoot an arrow at it. They will not march outside its gates with their shields, nor build banks of earth against its walls. The king will return to his own country by the same road on which he came. He will not enter this city, says the Lord, for my own honor and for the sake of my servant David. I will defend this city and protect it. What a great message from God. This is the kind of message you want to get when you're in the midst of this destitute times. You want to hear God come and say, listen, I'm going to take care of this for you. The next part of the story is even crazier. 
It says, that night, the angel of the Lord went out to the Assyrian camp and killed 185,000 Assyrian soldiers. When the surviving Assyrians woke up the next morning, they found corpses everywhere. Then King Sennacherib of Assyria broke camp and returned to his own land. He went to the capital of Nineveh and stayed there. This is mind-blowing to me. I honestly don't want to even picture it. But think about this. Here they're surrounded by an army. God comes and gives a message to the prophet Isaiah. We're gonna, don't worry, I'm going to take care of it. And then he literally does. They don't even have to get up. They don't even have to put on their armor and go out to war. It says an angel of the Lord just goes and wipes out 185,000 soldiers, discourages them, and they leave. I kind of wish this was the way Christianity always worked. That every time I, I faced something hard, I'd get this incredible prophetic person coming to me and saying, don't worry, I have a word of the Lord for you. And that word of the Lord was like this one. Don't worry, you don't have to do anything. And I could go back to bed and wake up and all my enemies would be dead. Not literal people, okay? But all the things in my life that were hard would be over. And we see this incredible moment, but unfortunately we know life doesn't always go this way. But sometimes we see God move in a miraculous way that's just mind-blowing. And that's what happens in this story. And so now the army's leaving and the city's free. Let's pick up in verse 1 of chapter 20. Now at the same time as this army has surrounded the city, and they're threatening Hezekiah and the people of Judah, Hezekiah becomes sick. So not only is he threatened with death for his country and his nation, he himself is very ill. And it says this, about the time Hezekiah, about that same time, Hezekiah became deathly ill. And the prophet Isaiah, son of Amos, went to visit him. So hey, another prophetic word, awesome. He gave the king this message. This is what the Lord says. Set your affairs in order, for you are going to die. What? Wait a second. Let's just back up. Can we go back to the other message you gave me? The one where you free us and you do all the work? But instead he gets this message from Isaiah saying that you're going to die. Set your affairs in order. You will not recover from this illness. This is a bad prophetic word. Isaiah should have just stayed home. It says, when King Hezekiah heard this, he turned his face to the wall and prayed to the Lord. Remember, O Lord, how I have always been faithful to you and have served you single-mindedly, always doing what pleases you. Then he broke down and wept bitterly. But before Isaiah had left the middle courtyard, this message came to him from the Lord. Go back to Hezekiah, the leader of my people. Tell him, this is what the Lord, the God of your ancestor David says. I have heard your prayer. And seen your tears, I will heal you, and three days from now you will get out of bed and go to the temple of the Lord, and I will add 15 years to your life. I will rescue you in this city from the king of Assyria. I will defend this city for my own honor and for the sake of my servant, David. Listen to this message. He gets a prophetic word from God. He's going to die. And it says that he breaks down and he weeps and he turns to the wall and he prays. I, I don't know about your theology, but if you have a theology that you can't change God's mind, you need to tear this page out of your Bible. Because it doesn't make sense. That God would deliver a prophetic word through Isaiah, but then somehow this man, he gets emotional, he turns to the wall, he cries and he prays, and God changes his mind and says, go back, I have a new word. Tell him I'm going to add 15 years to his life. Tell him I'm going to make him better again. And he does. And if it doesn't get even crazier than that, the next part of the story, which this is wild to me, it says, Hezekiah says to David, or says to Isaiah, what sign will the Lord give to prove that he will heal me? I'm like, bro, that's a little arrogant. He just saved you from an entire army. He says he's going to save you from this illness, and you're like, give me a sign? But this is how good God is to us sometimes. And so guess what he says? Guess what Isaiah says? All right, we'll give you a sign. you got a choice. How about 
will move the sundial back 10 hours or forward 10 hours, whatever you like. What? Now, I've never had God ask me if I want to, you know, reverse time. But that'd be pretty handy. And he literally says, well, the sundial always moves forward, so why don't we go back 10 steps? And it did. It says the sun that day went back 10 steps. So I, I don't get it, like a 34-hour day or something. But literally, God shows Hezekiah how incredibly powerful he is, how incredibly the love he has for his people. And he shows up in these miraculous ways. I wish this was kind of the end of the story, but it's not. Let's turn the chapter. The end of chapter 20. Another little story takes place, and I don't want to get into it a lot. But basically, these men from Babylon come. And Hezekiah, you know, he's feeling pretty proud of himself. He's like, God always takes care of me. Look at the incredible things he does. And he ends up showing these men from Babylon all around the city. And he ends up taking them into the temple. And he shows them the temple. And he shows them all the gold and all the things that God's blessed them with. Well, it turns out, guess what? These Babylon guys, they're not good. They're spies. And honestly, he's being a little arrogant by just showing everything to them. And so Isaiah gets this word from God that kind of comes in to correct Hezekiah for doing this. And we get to verse 16 in chapter 20, and it says, Then Isaiah said to Hezekiah, listen to this message from the Lord, another message from God. The time is coming when everything in your palace, all the treasures stored up by your ancestors until now will be carried off to Babylon. That's not good. Nothing will be left, says the Lord. Some of your very own sons will be taken away into exile. They will become eunuchs who will serve in the palace of the Babylon's king. This is a bad message. I googled what eunuch means. It's bad. Then Hezekiah says to Isaiah, this message you have given me from the Lord is good. What? I'm telling you, I had to read this like a dozen times thinking, my, my Bible must have misprinted something here. What do you mean this message from the Lord is good? There's probably supposed to be a not in there. This message from the Lord is not good. Your son's becoming eunuchs, not good. Babylon taking everything, not good. Why is he saying this is good? And it goes on to explain. It says, for the king was thinking, at least there will be peace and security during my lifetime. Ouch. You see, this is the problem with Hezekiah, and this is why there was no king as good as him after, is because what happened to him is kind of what happens to all of us, is we end up getting consumed with our own lives. You see, Hezekiah only began to care what happened during his lifetime. And we can look at a statement like this, and as we read it, we can be a little judgy on Hezekiah and be like, man, I can't believe Hezekiah would say that. But listen, we're all saying that at times. We might sound a little different than Hezekiah, but some of it might sound a little like this. Well, man, I'm glad I didn't grow up today like they are. Or man, those millennials and and the way their attitude is, and their entitlement. Or man, those Gen Zers, those guys don't know how to work at all. Man, at least America wasn't like this when I grew up. Sound familiar now? And we get this attitude where we stop caring about what actually happens in the generation after us, and we only start to care about what happens in our lifetime. And we kind of build this wall going, well, you know what, that message good because it doesn't, at least it doesn't happen to me. I'm telling you, when we start to think like that, we'll suffer the same downfall as Hezekiah. And maybe good things will even be said about us, but there will be nothing passed on. There will be no legacy. It's our job as Christians, as parents, as those who know Christ in our life, to pass on the good works. Listen to this next part of the story. Chapter 21, we're going to hear a little bit about Manasseh, his son, Hezekiah's son. It says, Manasseh was 12 years old when he became king, and he reigned in Jerusalem 55 years. Probably the worst 55 years of Jerusalem's entire history. It says his mother, I can't say her name, we'll skip it. 
He did what was evil in the Lord's sight, following the detestable practices of the pagan nations that the Lord had driven from the land. He rebuilt the pagan shrines Hezekiah had destroyed. He constructed altars for Baal and set up Asherah poles, just as King Ahab had done. He also bowed before the powers of heavens and worshipped them. He built pagan altars in the temple of the Lord. He built these altars for the powers of the heaven in both courtyards of the Lord's hand. Manasseh even sacrificed his own son in the fire. One generation. One generation under Hezekiah and his son rebuilds all the things he had torn down and even goes so far as to sacrifice his legacy in the fire. All because something broke down between Hezekiah and Manasseh. Now he was 12 years old. When God healed Hezekiah's illness, if we believe what he said about being you know, 15 years added to his life. That means that just a few years after that healing, Manasseh was born. That somehow in the midst of those 15 years, I, I, I don't have the information, but I can't vision that, that somehow Hezekiah wasn't eye to eye with Manasseh saying, man, son, you've got to hear these stories that God did. Something got missed. Something didn't get passed on. Somehow Manasseh grew up and didn't understand how good God was or how God wanted to come through for Jerusalem or how God wanted to take care of Judah. Somehow that got missed from Hezekiah to Manasseh. And I'm telling you, as a people, we are always in the same danger of this. That we can look out at the world and we can think it's darker than it's ever been. Listen, it's not. It's really not. It's always been dark. That's the reality. The reality is since the fall of humanity after the garden, it has been dark and difficult and broken. And God sends the church, his people, into a world to represent him. And our job is not to look at the world and be like, yeesh, that got bad fast. It's for us to say, man, God can overcome. Justin read the message today that the gates of hell won't prevail against us, that we don't think, oh man, the gates of hell are too strong, so let's just sit back here. Let's just protect my generation and my thinking and my way of doing things. Instead, God calls us to go out and show the love of God to this world. I'm telling you, sometimes we look at the world and even with all the issues of the LGBTQ plus things and transgenderism and all the things that maybe for Christians we would look and cringe at. I'm telling you, those are just people so desperate for something in life, they'll go to the ends of the earth to find it. Those are the ones we should be going after. They're the ones that we should be eye to eye with saying, listen, God is good. He loves you. He wants to transform you. He wants to give you purpose and a place in this world. I'm telling you, God has plans for us to do. But if we become like King Hezekiah and we just think, well, at least it doesn't happen to me, we will fail. I'll tell you what, I refuse to be that person. And I refuse to even be that church. I want to be a church that, that they say, man, the way it was in the 80s and 90s, that was great. Oh, when, when Greg was pastor in the 2020s, that was awesome. But man, God showed up incredibly in 2050 and 2070 and 2100. I'm planning for another 100 years or so. That people would constantly see the increase of God's goodness in our community, in our lives. Because as a generation, we wouldn't get stuck in our own ways, but we would actually lift our eyes and say, how can we pass on the goodness of God to the next? And that we would do whatever it takes. That we would love in ways that maybe make us uncomfortable. That we would reach out in ways that maybe doesn't even feel like it's the way it's supposed to be. But I'm telling you, Jesus always broke the norms of our thinking. Judges, well, so I just want to read a few Psalms and then we're going to finish here. Psalm 78, 4, it says this, We will not hide these truths from our children. We will tell the next generation. Psalm 71, Oh God, do not forsake me until I have proclaimed your love to another generation. Psalms 145, 4, and One generation shall commend your works to another. We do not we want to be a one-generation people. You know, 
over these last six, seven years as I've transitioned to that lead pastor role and, you know, we've worked to even make changes and do our best in representing Jesus and we're not even close. We're just always saying, Jesus, how do we better represent you in this world? And one of the things I feel God has asked us to do is to make a change where we shift our eyes to this next generation and in an even deeper way. We've always cared about the next generation. It's one of the reasons why we wanted to bring our kids into worship, that we could actually begin to model in even more tangible ways to the next generation what it means to love God and to know God, to follow his ways. But what it, what it takes to do that is for an older generation to stand up and say, I'll do that. I'll pass it on. I'll tell the stories of God's goodness. And listen, an older generation just isn't age. It's anybody who knows God now, who has seen God work, passing it on to someone who hasn't seen it work. It isn't just parents to their kids or grandparents to their grandkids. It isn't just in that literal sense that we can understand. It's anybody who doesn't know God. That there's a generation of people out there who are hungry for Jesus, they just don't know it yet. And it's our job to mobilize and to do whatever God asks us to do to show the love of Christ to this world. You know, about a year ago, um, Bruce Beckstead joined us back here in church and we all love Bruce, right? You can clap for him. And when we were talking about him coming back to NTC, he was pastoring for five years up at Northside Community Church. I was so excited to have him come back because I, I love his heart. I love his thinking. I love his perspective. And he joined us on staff meetings on Tuesdays and just has a lot to add. And he started to talk to me about this idea. How can we mobilize a senior generation to do the work God's calling them to do in this season of their life? And I, I began to think about this message. I'm like, man, this is exactly what my dream is. That a generation who knows God and has seen God's good works doesn't just settle in and wait for the end, but actually rises up and says, how can we love another generation? And so one of the things we're asking Bruce to do, and you're going to hear more about in coming days, Bruce is actually going to pastor the senior generation not to just exist, but to actually mobilize for what God wants to do in his kingdom. And we're excited. I don't even know what to see, say how that means. Actually, we were debating the other day, when did you actually become a senior? I said, it's anytime someone wants to give you a discount for your age. But we're going to talk, we want to literally be real with this. We don't want these to just be a message that's like, oh, that's a good idea. But how can we actually do that? We're going to probably be hearing from Bruce's heart in the coming weeks and months. How can an older generation actually pass on to the next generation his love, his good works, and what he has for them? Why don't we stand this morning? Thanks for letting me go a few minutes over. Sorry you were playing that long. <laughs> I believe God is awakening hearts right now. He's awakening people all over the world. He's awakening a generation of young people who maybe just aren't satisfied with the idea of just existing and getting through life and then retiring. But God giving them purpose in the midst of everything that they do. You know, it's funny, when you come to God, sometimes we think that he's gonna like drastically alter our path. That's usually not the way. He mostly just wants to drastically alternate, alter your mindset. So that wherever our path leads us, he's using us. Whatever job we're in, whatever friendship group we're around, that he's using us in the midst of that. That we actually become his hands and feet in a world. So my prayer today is this, that we would all choose today to say, listen, I'm in for the next generation. God, we just thank you this morning for who you are. We thank you for what you're doing in this place. God, I ask right now that you would challenge every one of our hearts, that you would maybe even put your finger on and apply a little pressure to us, God. Wherever we need to change, whatever 
you want to do in us, God, that you would kind of give us that nudge to say, maybe this is how you can think differently. Maybe this is how you can act differently. Maybe this is how you can show the love of God around you. So, Father, we just submit to you, Jesus. We want to do whatever you're doing, God. We want to go where you're going. We want to act the way that you act. And so, God, I pray today that you would move our hearts like yours is moved, God, that we would be a generation where it doesn't say there was nothing like them after, but, God, that they propelled the next generation into the future. And, God, we pray for this next generation right now. God, we pray that there would be an awakening in hearts and minds. God, that there would be a church that would rise up, not just in America, but around the world, that would represent your heart well that would set aside the distractions of things that try to take our attention and that we would just focus on you, focus on what you're doing. So God, we thank you for what you're doing in this place. God, we ask your blessing over every heart and mind in the name of Jesus. We say together, amen, amen. I just would say today, be blessed. Have a wonderful day. Enjoy your graduation parties. We'll see you again soon. We always want to let you know there's people in the back ready to pray for you or we'd love to meet you at the Connect Center. Thank you for listening to NTC Messina's podcast. We hope you join us next week and have a blessed day.